You're listening to Stanford Out Loud. We bring you stories from Stanford Magazine, featuring the voices of our campus community. I'm your host, Kevin Cool, editor of Stanford Magazine. The story in this episode will be read by Teresa Johnston, who has been a part of the Stanford community since her freshman year in 1979. So I guess I'm part of the Stanford family. I started working at the Stanford News Service right after I graduated. Then since the mid-90s, I've been freelancing for pretty much every magazine on campus. Teresa wrote the original version of today's story about Leland Stanford, Jr. I think it was one of the very first stories where I really had a chance to go into the archives and look at primary documents, and that was a, a treat for me. Here's the story. Leland and Jane Stanford were not the type to boast. But in the spring of 1868, they couldn't help feeling proud. Leland Stanford's most ambitious business venture, the western portion of America's first transcontinental railroad, was racing toward completion at Promontory, Utah. And there was something else, something even better, which they revealed at an intimate gathering at their home in Sacramento. Bertha Berner, Jane's longtime personal secretary, described the scene. Mr. Stanford asked Mrs. Stanford to arrange a dinner party for a group of their particular friends. When the guests were seated, the waiter brought in a large silver platter with a cover and placed it in the center of the table. The governor rose to his feet and announced that there was someone he wished to introduce. The cover of the silver dish was lifted, and the baby was discovered lying in it on blossoms. After 18 years of childless marriage, the 44-year-old former California governor and his nearly 40-year-old wife were the elated parents of a healthy baby boy. Little Leland Stanford was carried around the table and shown to each guest, Berner wrote in her biography. He was smiling and went through his introduction very nicely. Like many wealthy children of America's gilded age, Leland Stanford Jr. was born into a glittering world of silver and servants, pampering and privilege. Collared in lace and cultivated by tutors, the young heir to the Stanford fortune had his own pony and a miniature train that ran on a 400-foot track from the family's Palo Alto house to the stables. As a teenager, he rubbed elbows with senators, generals, and Supreme Court justices and traveled with his family by rail across much of the United States and Europe. But there is another side to the boy, a side that is largely unknown to graduates of the university that bears his name. Tucked inside gray archival boxes in Green Library are carefully preserved letters and drawings that hint at the answer to a question that has rarely been asked. Who was Leland Stanford Jr.? Unlike many Victorian tykes who were raised to be seen and not heard, little brown-eyed Leland was clearly the center of his adoring parents' world. The governor and his wife were at a point in their lives where they could shower attention on the child. Maids, cooks, and nurses took care of the heavy work, leaving Jane to focus on her family. And their richly furnished Sacramento house had all the 19th century conveniences money could buy. Nevertheless, the Stanfords were a pragmatic couple, determined to bring their son up as sensibly as possible. Former Special Collections librarian Linda Long explained in a 1991 Stanford Historical Society article that both Jane and Leland came from middle-class, hard-working families with strong family values, which they were determined to teach their son. They were dedicated to their growing boy, whom they cherished, but they stopped short of catering to his every wish. Apparently, the strategy worked. 
for the Stanford archives are full of references to Leland Jr.'s good nature. When he was five years old, he and his family moved to San Francisco to be near the new headquarters of the Central Pacific Railroad. Looking out the front window one day, the boy was upset to see a small mongrel dog with a broken leg. He carried the animal into the house, bathed and bandaged the limb, and then summoned the family doctor to find out what to do next. Another time, young Leland was playing outside with the maid's nephew when the little boy started crying about his muddy shoes. So the Stanford heir took his companion into the kitchen, stood him on a chair, and scrubbed the shoes clean. At their home in San Francisco, Leland Jr.'s rooms reflected his artistic and mechanical interests. He was an enthusiastic amateur photographer. He enjoyed sketching trains and ships, meticulously incorporating tiny American flags and rigging for the sails. One pencil and crayon effort shows ships engaged in a harbor battle with a fort on the shore spewing puffy white smoke. Among his playthings were a toy steam engine, a telegraphic apparatus, a telephone, and tools that he used for wood carving. The house also had a workroom where he could tinker with mechanical devices. Once when their son was working on a small steam engine, the Stanfords heard a loud pop and went to investigate. They found Leland Jr. holding a handkerchief to his face. He looked at them and said two words, boiler exploded. But for sheer boyish pleasure, nothing could compare to the Palo Alto family farm. When Governor Stanford purchased the first 650 acres of the property in 1876, he hoped to acquaint his young son with the country pastimes he had enjoyed as a youth in upstate New York. The estate quickly became the family's favorite retreat, a fog-free haven of orchards, vineyards, grazing lands, stables, and training tracks where Leland Jr. could adventure from dawn to dusk. He rode around the farm on his pony, fished in the creek, picnicked in the redwoods, and hunted arrowheads in the foothills near Jasper Ridge. His tutor, Herbert Nash, recalled that Leland Jr. was full of life and health, and like any boy his age, he did not prefer his Latin grammar to his gun or his algebra to his driving team. Even so, Leland Jr. was a diligent pupil with a knack for French, German, and history, and an insatiably curious intellect that today's Stanford admissions deans would have appreciated. His tutor sometimes found it hard to keep pace with him. He was impatient with cursory textbook facts and always hungry for explanations. Determined not to neglect the practical side of his son's education, Governor Stanford enrolled Leland Jr. in accounting courses at San Francisco's new Heald College. While he assumed that his son would someday take over his various business enterprises, the governor believed in bringing up the boy in the spirit of self-dependence, a San Francisco newspaper reported in 1877. That way, if the father's riches bewing themselves, the son will be able to take care of himself. Above all, Leland and Jane Stanford believed in the educational value of travel. Shortly after Leland Jr.'s first birthday, the toddler and his mother began making regular trips on the new transcontinental railroad to visit relatives and friends in New York. At 12, he went on his first European grand tour, accompanied by his mother and his tutor. Everywhere they went offered new opportunities to satisfy his desire for information. 
He could not see macaroni made without having an explanation of the whole process, or glass blown without learning all the details of the business, the wages paid the workmen, the hours of labor, etc., Nash recalled. Leland Jr.'s travelogue entries from the trip, dated April to August 1881, describe a lively European routine that included morning lessons and afternoon sightseeing, dancing classes, swimming lessons, and romps in the Tuileries Garden, plus an occasional evening out for dinner or the opera. Traveling in Italy, the boy was particularly impressed by a trip to Mount Vesuvius and by a solemn audience at the Vatican with Pope Leo XIII. Later, the Protestant lad told his mother, who suffered debilitating headaches, that he was sure she soon would be feeling better, as he had mounted the holy steps on his knees, saying a prayer for her recovery on each step. Two years later, when the family embarked on its second European tour, Leland Jr. had matured into a slender, thoughtful youth of 15. He was about 5 feet 10 inches tall, with clear, fair skin and light brown hair. Meanwhile, his nearly 60-year-old father and 54-year-old mother were showing signs of age. Doctors prescribed soaks in Bavarian hot springs for the aching governor. Papa has not improved as much as we hoped for, the teenager wrote an aunt from the RMS Germanic in June 1883, and Mama has only been to the table twice. She's had a great deal of pain in her head. I hope you will write to Mama often and keep her cheered up. Although Governor Stanford rallied under the care of London doctors, Jane Stanford's headaches continued to trouble her. Between outings with his tutor, young Leland would sit in her darkened sickroom and tell her about everything he had seen in the city. When Jane was well enough to travel, the family struck out for museums and auction houses of Great Britain and the continent. On their previous European adventure, Jane had encouraged her budding archaeologist to collect and catalog mementos of the sites he had seen, including Venetian glass animals and a bayonet and two rifle balls from Waterloo. Now the boy was determined to build a public archaeological museum in San Francisco. Leland Jr. spent many happy afternoons in the Egyptian wing of the Louvre, copying hieroglyphics and learning to decipher them with the help of famed Egyptologist George Darasay. He also made the rounds of famous auction houses and antiquities dealers, purchasing ancient coins, Egyptian bronzes, Greek vases, and other pieces with small sums for which he had to keep strict accounts. His tutor recalled with satisfaction. It frequently happened that in looking over specimens offered him for sale, Leland would hand some back to the dealer, quietly remarking that they were imitations. Invariably, the man, after looking at his young customer, would apologize, excusing himself on the ground that the imitations had accidentally slipped in with the others. After spending Christmas of 1883 in Vienna, the Stanfords headed toward Constantinople, where the Sultan wanted the governor's advice about the construction of a Turkish railroad. The dazzled young Leland wrote his friend, Lizzie Hull, When we arrived, we thought we were in the strangest country we had ever been in before. No two Turks seemed to be dressed alike because their clothes are of so many different colors. We saw diamonds literally by the bushel and one emerald as large as your hand. On one particularly joyous occasion, the family took a cruise on the Bosporus Strait, and the 15-year-old was allowed to steer the party's small steamboat. Bertha Berner, Jane's secretary, wrote that he stood at the wheel all day long, 
with a sharp wind blowing in his face and spray dashing over the deck, for it was a rough day. He was greatly excited and very happy. Later that evening, Jane thought her boy looked a little pale. The weather had turned cold, and by the time the family arrived in Athens in January 1884, the snow was knee-deep. Undeterred, Leland Jr. insisted on visiting the ancient temples and on meeting with the most celebrated archaeologist of the day, Heinrich Schleiman, who recently had unearthed the site of ancient Troy. Limping back to the Italian peninsula in mid-February, neither Mrs. Stanford nor Leland Jr. felt well. Berner recalled, the climate of Rome plainly did not agree with Leland. They took him to Florence, where the air was somewhat more bracing. In fact, Leland Jr. had contracted typhoid, a bacterial illness whose symptoms include a sudden high fever, severe headache, and nausea. There was no known cure. Frantically, his parents telegraphed physicians in Rome and summoned them to the Bristol Hotel. Herbert Nash described the agony that followed. For three weeks, alternate hope and fear reigned in the darkened room. As Leland Jr.'s fever spiked, his mind was lucid at times, and at times wandering to his horses and his museum, his studies and his pleasures. On February 25th, Jane wrote to a friend, I have turned for comfort to the giver of both good and evil, and my faith has increased, and now I again turn to him with entreaties to save me, my darling son. To reduce the fever, doctors wrapped Leland Jr.'s body in ice-cold wet sheets, an excruciating treatment the shivering boy begged to avoid. Nuns were brought in around the clock to nurse the delirious youth, and at one point, the hotel manager had straw scattered outside to deaden street noise. Their efforts were futile. Two months before his 16th birthday, on March 13, 1884, Leland Stanford Jr. died. Prostrate with grief at the hotel, Leland Stanford is said to have had a dream about his departed son, who urged his parents to keep on living for the good of humanity. Leland and Jane Stanford laid their only child to rest in a small mausoleum near their beloved Palo Alto farmhouse. One year later, they signed a grant founding and endowing the Leland Stanford Junior University. Their goal for the university was the same one they had cherished for their son, to qualify students for personal success and direct usefulness in life. The original version of this story was written by Teresa Johnston and appeared in the July 2003 issue of Stanford Magazine. Stanford Out Loud is produced by Charity Ferreira and Will Rogers and brought to you by the Stanford Alumni Association. For more of our stories, visit stanfordmag.org.